Hi and welcome back to Now, a series of podcasts where we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. In the company of some wonderful guests, we open up gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold cassette inlays, slip out CD booklets and explore how our favourite compilation albums have shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own pop culture journeys. And join in with me, Ian, and the Back to Now social community across Twitter, Facebook, Substack and Instagram by searching for the Pop Rambler pages. And now, let's go Back to Now. Joining me for this special episode is music consultant and ducky legend Mark Wood and music journalist, author and co-founder of Needle Mythology Records, Pete Perfides. Gentlemen, welcome back to now. Thank you. Hi. Lovely to see you. Now, as I say, this is a special episode of the podcast. We are celebrating not just a now album, but a whole year or indeed a now yearbook. And we're heading back 50 years to 1973. Of top of the pops. Boy, oh boy, do we have some good things for you today. We certainly do. We're going to sort of go back in time, aren't we, and see some of the hits of this year. We'll be looking back over 1973 at some of the greatest sounds around. Mark, I'm going to come to you first because we need to talk about your entire voyage through 1973 via social media. The mm. question on everybody's lips, why? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm living in 1973, uh, at the moment, I thought I'd take a bit of a holiday from the 2020s. I don't know, 1973. So I'm I'm very, uh, I've always had this, you know, I'm always sort of thinking that is my favourite rock record. That's my favourite soul record. That's my favourite Bowie LP, you know, and they always end up being traced to 1973 in some way. And then, you know, hearing about things like, uh, you know, the Rocky Horror Show started in 1973. The Wigan Casino started in 1973. You know, that'll be the day in American Graffiti, two of my favourite nostalgia films, both 1973. You know, my favourite Bond films, 1973. My favourite Doctor Who episode is 1973. I love Man About the House and Are You Being Served, two, you know, sitcoms, rubbish sitcoms but they're both 1973 ones I, I sort of can't get away from it you know some amazing cinema you know the exorcist um american graffiti like i've just said woody allen's uh sleeper uh westworld you know my favorite sci-fi film i love big bieber you know the, the bieber fashion brand you know they opened their huge department store in kensington high street in 1973 and and that whole aesthetic which was very sort of uh, gold frap, supernature, that sort of mm-hmm. vibe. You know, it just turns me on, baby. And I, I wake up every morning and I check and see what was on telly that day, look and see what records came out that week. I'm watching as many 1973 films, even bottom of the barrel stuff that I can find. So I've seen 48 films from 1973 this year. Uh, I'm reading books published in 1973 <laughs> halfway through thomas pynchon's uh gravity's rainbow which is apparently the most difficult book to yeah. read ever um and i'm halfway through that and I, you know it's fine you know i'm not it's not easy but i'm not i'm not feeling like i want to chuck it across the room i'm sure pete will want to talk about the beatles 62 and 66 and 67 oh, yeah. to 70 which both 
uh, ended up in the best-selling albums of the year. Mm. Anyway, that's why I'm having a holiday from horrible now and next year. I'm already sort of quite looking forward to January when I can start catching up on what I've missed culturally this year, but it's nice <laughs> to take a holiday. So, Pete, 1973, what does it say for you? Um, it's all a bit sketchy for me because I'm that bit younger than Mark, but I've, I've been massively enjoying Mark's social media feed. I mean, Mark, what he hasn't mentioned, uh, which I think is just sort of heroic, is that he gets up at five in the morning to kind of find these incredible kind of fragments of archive, and he curates them so beautifully and so lovingly. And, you know, this is just two hours of his day before he even starts the day. And he just does it, you know, obviously for his own pleasure, but also for the pleasure of everyone who uh, who gets to see them. And, um, you know, it's a it's real sort of immersive sort of time machine stuff. And, you know, it's very magical for me because I was four and, you know, my, my very first kind of stirrings of 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 loving pop really sort of date back to this year so you know i wasn't sort of i wasn't sort of identity you know you wouldn't obviously at that age identify as as a pop fan but things were starting to really sort of stick in my head something like you know gilbert o'sullivan and i remember i've got very early memories of just sort of you know, being getting ready for nursery or whatever, and sort of think, you know, those really super catchy songs of of the time sort of playing, and uh, I feel that there's a kind of vapor emitted by so many of the songs that we're going to talk about yes. that um, really is kind of synonymous with this sort of whole period. Even if when I didn't know the songs at the time, the instrumentations, the producers, the voices, I sort of feel like I do, and that's that's a re- been a really nice thing to kind of drill into, you know, in preparation for this. Yeah, so so I was I was um, two months old at the beginning. I was going to say, are we <laughs> celebrating fifty years of Ian as well? We are, well? Yeah, we are. I I was two months old, and so. But what you say, Pete, is it resonates with me because so much of this year continued to have an impact through the seventies and beyond. Mm. My kind of first memories of the radio would probably be 75, 76, things like 10cc, Bay City Rollers, you know, that type of stuff. So that's already here in 73. I've got to ask you, Mark, when you knew this yearbook was coming out, how did you feel? Oh, God, I mean, I, I you know, I've almost had a fit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as as you know, we, we're, we're all kind of friendly with the team that work on the now. Mm. So I got, I got, you know, I got the press release. I hastily checked, as I always do, to see what they haven't been able to clear <laughs> for it. First thing that I do when I, you know, because I compile uh, albums as well. And, you know, there's always a sort of fight to get hold of everything you want. And you never do. Mm. Um, and, you know, the strike rate on this one was spectacularly good. I sort of salivated over it. And, and uh, and, and you know, it, it, the, this volume, there's an extra coming as well. But the official one, you know, genuinely has, you know, like I was saying at the front of of the thing, you know, one of my favourite soul records of all time, one of my favourite rock records of all time, loads of my favourite glam. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's wonderful. You know, it's, it's great to have them all in one place. If you look back at the, well, there's 17 number ones. You will know all of this, Mark. You will know all the 17 number ones, 1973, 11 different artists. Most of them are on this album. Yes, obviously Gary Glitter, for the obvious reasons, isn't yeah. there. 
but yeah, pretty much everybody else's, right? It must have been, I don't know the stats, but it must have been one of the kind of biggest years for single sales as well. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it, you have these moments in in sort of the British pop when so you've got the sort of mid nineties when you've got your big Ibiza records, all of your big huge Oasis, Britpop, Blur things going on, and you've got Spice Girls and that all kind of happening at the same time. There's a moment in the early eighties which you know we all know and love really well from about Adamant to Live Aid when you've got these your whams and your Spandaus and you know everything. Everything, even you know, records that get to number two in a year like that sell more than most years' number ones. And mm. I think the end of the seventies is a bit like that. Our favourite in nineteen seventy nine, you know, our and the and the early seventies. But I'm I'm just a really big fan of the seventies the whole way through. There isn't a bad seventies year for me. And you know, you've got records here, you know, on this collection like Ball and Blitz by the Sweet which was number two for four weeks, you know, and it's, it's, and it feels like, it feels yeah. like a massive number one. Yeah. Mark, would I'm directing this, well, both of you really, but is this the year that you would say that the 70s found their sort of pop identity, that, you know, it was like there were sort of two years of kind of sort of uncertainty as to what the kind of sound and colours and feel and aesthetic of the 70s was going to be because this amazing sort of run of songs kind of near, near the beginning of this set really makes me sort of think oh god they, they kind of saw it it's kind of we're up to speed now you know it's kind of found it, its rhythm and and this is this is it you know things like you know Susie Quattro, Mud, Sweet, T- T-Rex, uh, Slade it, it kind of knows what it is by this point is that right? Yeah, I'd agree with that, Pete, because I think, you know, even in 1972, the year before, which was T-Rex's big year, and obviously T-Rex deserved credit for being the real glam rock trailblazers. Um, And we've got some T-Rex here, but they are slightly off the boil in 73 compared to previous couple of years. But I think that there are still, you know, as you say, 71, 70, 72 a bit, you're still not quite sure if you're out of the late 60s. Whereas looking at this track listing Mm. with the glam stuff that you've mentioned, but also what's coming through, especially from American soul music, you gamble and huffs, Barry White's here, you know, he's arrived. Uh, The Norman Whitfield stuff for The Temptations. We are definitely not in the late 60s anymore. It's interesting what you say, though, Pete, about that initial run on CD1. For somebody who lived through glam retrospectively, it almost compiles itself. You know, if you look at that from track three, you've got Come On, Feel The Noise, 20th Century Boy, Blockbuster, Dynamite. The thought of actually being there at the time when these singles were being released, the only thing I can compare it to would be something like, I suppose, 1989, because I was, Mm. you know, that was that was my time when week upon week upon week you were getting hits and these huge big influential tracks. To live through that at the time must have been quite incredible. It really was. I mean, what it was. I mean, I, I was only I was seven, so I'm the oldest. But I was very lucky. I had an auntie who worked for Decca, a uh, British record company, and there was this scheme thing. I think I talked about it on my now before, but she could order any single for me for seventeen p. And it was like an internal thing. Still quite, you know, still still more than my pocket money. But I got I got spoiled. I got given, I got bought a lot of records. So the Gene Genie was a single I had. I had the Gary Glitter singles. I had Can the Can and Blockbuster. And, um, you know, Blockbuster I got for my birthday that year. So she also DJed my Auntie Janet, which was really unusual for a sort of woman in the, you know, early 70s. She DJed in 
pubs up at the old Kent Road and uh, Walworth and Camberwell and things like that. So she had all these amazing records and, you know, we're big sort of quite close family. So all of this stuff was sort of just knocking around, you know, and if I didn't have it, she would. I remember a birthday, just what you said, Ian, I remember a birthday cake um, I got in March 1974. My mum had made it for me. It was a guitar mm-hmm. and it was iced white, but she'd written all of those names you've just said all over it. Slade, T-Rex, <laughs> Susie Quattro, Mud, Alvin Stardust, Wizard, you know, the whole lot of them, they were all on there. Yeah, there's a real confident run in, in those tracks as well. I think, you know, as as Pete was saying, it's like the 70s finally found its feet. Well, I think this for 1973 was for Chin and Chapman. I, mm. What 1988 was for Stock Aitken and Waterman. Yeah, it's just they would. It was just blam, 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 one after the other. There's what I love here is obviously I'm assuming that it wasn't possible to get any David Bowie tracks other than the Laughing Gnome. But in a way, I like the fact that the Laughing Gnome is on there because it's sort of, um, you know, it harks back to this era where you know. Um, you know, Bowie was sort of trying to do something that kind of sat at the intersection of sort of pop and rock and musical theatre, but he hadn't sort of quite got the ratio right. And then, you know, with Ziggy Stardust, he revisited that equation and did get it get it dramatically right. So what we're seeing with the Laughing Gnome and all the tracks that sort of come just before it is the sort of um, before and after. I'll tell you what, actually, what, a track that really blew me away, because I've not heard it for years and years and years, was uh, My Cuckoo by Alvin Stardust, mm. which is just the production and sound. It is really, it's like up there, for me, with with the best of them. Yeah, Peter Shelley, not the Buzzcocks one, but Peter Shelley <coughs> wrote all that stuff. But you, you write that intro and then it goes... And it just it just explodes, doesn't it? Apparently, there's apparently it's lost in the mist of time. But apparently, the first TV performance of of Mike Ukachu, uh was by Alvin Stardust. It was actually did not feature Alvin. It was actually Peter Shelley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's I amazing. Now you've said I remember it, and I'm sure because Makukuchu is just about to be released in 1973 on my little journey. And he realised it wasn't going to be a that it was going to be a hit, and he didn't really want to be a pop star. So they quickly had to find someone yeah, who was willing, Fenton up from willing to be out Alvin Stardust. Mm. And Shane and Shane Fenton, you know, we are, said, "Yeah, sure, I'll do it. I've got presumably so I haven't got much on." And there's this great parallel between. I remember this. I suddenly remembered. I interviewed Alvin Stardust a few years ago. Obviously, he's no longer with us, but uh, he um, and he said that he had like a minder hired to accompany him um, on, when he was on top of the pops to stop people getting near him to say, "Hang on, aren't you Shane Fenton?" So like. So it kind of mirrors what David Bowie, in a weird way, what David Bowie did in America when he had sort of minders sort of trying to yeah. keep way to sort of like retain the mystique. But obviously, in Alvin's case, it was done for slightly more prosaic reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so they didn't pull his wig off as well. well <laughs> that yeah, was Gary yeah. Glitter's thing, wasn't it? You know, Gary yes, Glitter. Yes, yes. Yeah. Have you seen the the Susie Q documentary? Yeah, I did. I got I got a signed DVD of that, and I had Don Powell from Slade sitting behind me. How about that? That's the most glamorous moment you could possibly have.
Mike Chapman's on there talking about the production just as he does. That whole story, and, and I suppose in some way, you know, the kind of story of Susie coming over from America, having worked in these garage bands in America and working her way up, and it was a story I didn't know that well. She's included here in the glam element of 1973, but she wasn't really glam rock, was she? I mean, I, I don't know. What, what do you I think? I think the sound, the sound was, I think she saw herself as a sort of blues rocker almost. Yeah. Um, you know, like she... she she didn't wear glitter, and she, you know, she famously, like Alvin Stardust, wore leather cat suits rather than rather than uh, satin and sequins and all that stuff. But, but I, I guess you've got the sort of chinny chap sound there, yeah, yeah, um, and you know that kind of puts her comfortably uh, with those sorts of these people are like you know remember that amazing sort of period. Um, in the early 80s when, you know, the pop stars, they all had a very defined, they were almost like Marvel superheroes. They all had like an image, you know, they weren't didn't just sort of slip onto stage with some jeans on and a T-shirt. The look was really, really part of it. And, you know, listen to Can the Can or 48 Crash and, you know, they sound they sound like she looked. And there's yeah. this amazing, I think it's Gerald Mankovitz pictures of the photo session for that album. And, She's all in this black leather and there's like dry ice and everything. You sort of think pre-internet and everything like that. You see a picture like that and it would like blow your head off because they, they look like they'd come from another planet. You know, yeah. they, like, they had superpowers. I think she she was pragmatic, wasn't she? She's still very um, loyal to, you know, very um, uh, grateful to what Chin and Chapman did for her, you know, because she, she, she clearly understood maybe better. I know... You know, the suite were ambivalent about the fact that, you know, success came at the price of not being able to write their own B-sides. But um, she seemed to completely sort of understand that, you know, this was how it had, you know, she just couldn't write those hits that would propel her to the stratosphere you know that the, she she needed that and you know in record collector the other month i saw an interview with um uh, richard gower the front man of racy who was sort of talking about the same thing really that basically they tried it their way they released racy's debut single and it did nothing and then okay it was like okay let's try it our way now and of course you can't argue with that kind of success no, I mean Mickey Most. He was he was a genius, didn't he? He brought her over and he put her in a flat in Earl's Court, I think, a sort of little basement flat in Earl's Court when Earl's Court was much less salubrious than it is mm. now, um, and it was sort of damp. And she talks about you know the sort of like missing or her family and missing the sunshine and um, yeah. uh, uh, but she kept at it, you know, and she had this amazing, you know, this this year. Of um, you know, can the can forty eight crash? Daytona Demon is on the uh, extra disc. That first year of COVID, when it was completely miserable and we'd all been locked down for months, you couldn't go. You couldn't go abroad. When the country opened up again, Jenny thought, right, we'll do a holiday. We always have a week away together without our husbands. What we'll do is we'll go to Canterbury and Herne Bay and Whitstable and Brighton and Littlehampton. So we did like a little guest houses tour of seaside places in the UK and. When we got to Littlehampton, which was sort of the end of the week, we went to the fun fair on the Saturday afternoon. The fair had opened. Everyone was sort of still, you know, wearing masks and things like that. But the fair was fair game. And we got onto the waltzer. We're both big fans of fun fair rides, especially waltzers. And the sort of ride start, we were in a, we were in a sort of like, a, what do you call them, a car, a waltzer car. And we're in 2021. 
And the ride starts, the car starts sort of gently tipping backwards and forwards. And I said to Jelly, the music starts up. And I said, it can't be, it can't be, because, you know, there's all this noise. And, and Daytona Demon was like, they played Daytona Demon the whole way through. record I didn't even hear at the fair in 1973 <laughs> and it was just this it was almost like God had said you will have fun on this ride the waltzer and he, he kept us on that ride for the entire length of the song you know like we were just like we ever going to be let off <laughs> and it is genuinely the most rackety record it's 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 really quite it's got heavy breathing in it it's barely got a chorus you know it makes can the can sound like peters and lee um and it was just the most wonderful hearing daytona demon live at the fair in little hampton during covid it was wonderful it's kind of glam rock sort of sounds like it should always be played at kind of slightly kind of sinister fairground yeah you know. Yeah, right. It just on played through speakers that can barely contain it, and also you know that extends to sort of wizard and all all that kind of maximalist kind of pop that was really sort of staking its claim in that period. But it's hugely exciting genre of music and also something that came and went i mean i had a legacy you know but it was incredibly fast incredibly exciting and you know made for singles and you know mark you've been reliving that all year but i love it when you got up early and post sleeve shots of records and you know these types of things and and it's and it's just such a kind of breathless rush and i think it's recognized in this cd because i think pretty much two of the four cds have got a really decent run across yeah. And it, and it and it you know again on the extra stuff as well you know right so you mentioned fairgrounds watch what i do here let's talk about the rock and roll revival mark this fair you go to yeah do you reckon there's a job there for me mm. any more for the merry-go-round um so yeah that'll be the day i checked back in the album charts the soundtrack to that'll be the day seven weeks at number one yeah, and something weird happens after that. So, yeah, it, it is, um, it's a massive, massive, uh, If you know, I, I read the newspapers from 1973, so I can see what's, uh, you know, I read the whole Gazette or whatever, you know. I've got an I've got a subscription to all the local papers from 73, and so you can see what's playing at the local Odeon or ABC or whatever. And that'll be the day is literally from when it's released, it's there till the end of the year. They released a sort of landmark soundtrack album from it on Ronco. Ronco uh, were famous for compilation albums as well as making machines that put buttons on your trousers and all sorts of other sort of stuff as well. And, you know, it is a collection of late 50s, early 60s, rock and roll from the film. Some of the songs on there, you barely notice them in the film because they're playing at the fair um, in the background when Ringo and David Essex are kind of, you know, chatting up girls or something. And um, it, it sort of phenomenally successful. Number one film at the box office for weeks and number one album for weeks when compilation sat in the normal albums charts and then something weird happens around august time when all of the compilations i think the chart rules must have changed and they must have temporarily decided that they didn't want compilations in the albums chart anymore because probably because of the success of things like that will be the day and the album just disappears forever so so it's chart run on the official charts company is really interesting it's like one 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 nothing 
just doesn't, doesn't go down the chart it just disappears and we've got a couple of big Ketel albums that are released in this wake of that that yeah. don't have a chart position even though we know that you know hundreds of thousands of them probably went out because they they're ubiquitous uh second hand records so that'll be the day yeah rock and roll revivalism started around 70 71 with Mm. I think people realising that, that for all the sort of amazingness of the late 60s and, you know, these sort of massive long guitar solos and political music and um, – but I think people were realising that they'd lost – pop music had lost something. And you hear that in everything from the Carpenters sort of doing Now and Then in 1973, where there's a great big medley of covers. Mm. Um, yeah, and people like John Lennon and David Bowie and Brian Ferry – you know, embarking Harry Nielsen, you know, embarking on albums which cover the songs from, I guess, pre-1966. So lots of rock and roll, lots of early R&B. At Wembley, the year before, there was this sort of great, really famous, there's a film made about it. It's like a rock and roll festival. And they brought over Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Bill Haley. And, you know, it filled Wembley. You know, it was, a, it's, a, it's, a, there's a, it's a really well documented in this film. There's some great photos. And of course, in the King's Road... Uh, at this time, 50 years ago, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood are running Let It Rock, which was a sort of fetishist version of the 1950s, yeah. which brought in all of their kind of situationist ideas into basically teddy boy clothes and bobby socks, you know. So, And, and if you look at, as I do, a lot of the fashion spreads from the time, so much of the clothing's coming from that one shop in the King's Road because it's becoming a big look. Obviously, the Rocky Horror Show is mm. a tribute to 50s rock and roll. From the States, you've got American Graffiti, Shawaddy Waddy form in 1973, as we know it. And they appear on New Faces, which was the sexier version of Opportunity Knox. Shawaddy Waddy, around yeah. now, I think, start appearing on that and they win. It just strikes me that the aesthetic of so much music and a lot of the, and the, 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 the stuff you just mentioned, Mark, the rock and roll revival stuff, and, and, you know, Glam, which I sort of include in that because people like Alvin Stardust and Gary Glitter had these kind of been preposterous kind of quiffs that were sort of presumably had their roots in, in that era. It's a little bit like people first started getting colour televisions and it's a little bit like rock and roll goes from black and white to colour. And that thing that you do as a little kid when you kind of, the first time when you when you play with the the contrast and color buttons for the first time and that that really exciting thing when you kind of make it as colorful as possible all the colors bleed into each other that's how i used to watch scooby doo and wacky races yeah <laughs> it's kind of like that's kind of the, the the iteration of rock and roll that kind of slightly returns in the 70s is rock and roll on a colour television where the knob is just turned up as high as it can go, so it's just a bit overwhelming. I wanted to ask you a question. So, because you mentioned that'll be the day, and because I've always wondered how how a song as strange as Rock On by David Essex yeah. could have been which is included on here was such a such an enormous hit is that because it got a leg up through that'll be the day I th I think by I think once that'll be the day had come out obviously David Essex had been around in Godspell but you know that's for theatre people people that go to musicals in London um and I, I don't know I don't know quite how many records he'd released before then but yeah this one you know I think David Essex 
is a really interesting pop star. He's seen as a little bit of a lightweight sometimes, and you know, some of the stuff and some of the material. But you know, he wrote Rock On. You know, he 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 wrote Rock On based on a load of phrases from early rock and roll records. You know, um, snatches of Little Richard, and 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 he had the great fortune to be. Uh, working with Jeff Wayne, who we know is a you know sort of production genius, and mm-hmm. and the, the sort of strangeness of that record is is about the two bass lines from Herbie Flowers, yeah. who's also on Walk on the Wild Side, which is another landmark record from 1973, um, and no guitars. I mean, it is a strange sounding record. I mean, it's 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 an incredibly sounding song, but you couldn't describe it to somebody. It's, you really um, couldn't. It just strikes me, just like literally hearing you hearing you describe it, Mark. It's a little bit what it seems to do with rock, rock. Its relation to rock and roll is a little bit like what say Etienne did in their last album to mm. the kind of to pop music of the of the beginning of the late kind of the the final kind of years of the 20th century uh, you know that kind of they've just it's been completely sort of pulverized and kind of the fragments of it have been rearranged to create something that's kind of really quite eerie and, and sort of powerful and um what a conceptually sort of amazing thing to do and it also yeah. invented drive by REM of course, and and so much else besides. I mean, the atmospherics in that record are amazing. Funny you should mention St Etienne because when they did their our hundred favorite tunes party about ten years ago at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, you know, probably the best fun I've ever had on a Sunday afternoon in my life. And um, we all sort of piled down there, and and the con the concept of that was they it was just Bob, Pete, and Sarah DJing their favorite hundred records as a chart countdown, and you you'd like you'd be on the dance floor dancing to. Torch by Soft Cell, and it'd be followed by Rocky Baby by George McRae, and that'd be followed by Janelle Monet Tightrope or, or whatever. You know, it was and and then Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pigeon, and you know we we're sort of getting towards you know what's going to be number one, what's going to be number one, and the last record they played at number one was Rock On by David Essex. It's that coming together of the rock and roll revival within glam. You can't imagine kids stomping around to rock on at a party. But it's absolutely the essence of glam. I wondered, you know, because he, Lamplight, with which was the follow-up, which is also a really strange sounding mm. record. It's like it sounds like it's it sound. It, I, I wondered. I, I played Lamplight, you know, the other day, um, and I wondered if Cockney Rebel were listening because it kind of sounds like Mr. Soft, which is from '74 by Cockney Rebel, and again the production, all these sort of strange backing vocals and. Not like any other pop music around, you know, nothing nothing like it and timeless. The album starts with Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, fair to say it was a rather good year for Elton, 1973. Yeah, I mean, he. we're recording this on the 50th anniversary of the release of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the album, which came out 50 years ago today. <clears throat> He'd already had Saturday Nights All Right for Fighting, mm. that as a top 10 single. And earlier in the year, he'd released Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player and Daniel in the top 10 single from that project. So Elton, if, you, if you're if you digging about 1973, Elton's everywhere. You know, he's got these two albums. He's got like loads of singles. He's permanently in the singles chart, more or less. There's pictures of him in a bath with Rod Stewart. There's pictures of him mucking about with Iggy Pop. You know, he is pretty much everywhere. Dressing up in Mr. Freedom clothes, dressing up in platform shoes, uh, posing at his Surrey mansion. You know, he's having a, the time of his life. And 
God bless them. In some ways, this is Elton's first big UK year or biggest UK year so far. It had that success in America. You look at an album like Bad Man Across the Water, which barely scratched the surface in the UK. Yeah, well, he'd had, he'd had your song, hadn't he, back in 1970 as a big hit. And then you're right, America sort of embraced Tiny Dancer and tracks like that. But we didn't really go for anything again from Elton until probably, is it, is it like... Is it Rocket Man? Uh, 72. He had a good 72. So there's Rocket Man and then Crocodile Rock at the end of that year. Mm. Again, 50s nostalgia. Um, and then you get Daniel and then Don't Shoot Me, I'm the Piano Player. I think it was the biggest selling British album. It's kind of conflicting reports uh, about whether it's that or Aladdin Sane, the biggest selling British album of the year. But, um, you know, it's certainly a massive record. And then... Yeah, and then Goodbye Yellow Bit Road is like his Sergeant Pepper, if you like. It's the one he'll probably always be remembered for among many brilliant albums. But it's, it's yeah, I, th- I think 73 yeah. is truly global now. The album cover for Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in some ways encapsulates so much of what 1973 was. As you say, Pete, it's that idea of black and white becoming colour almost. And that album in some ways kind of sums that up, which I suppose is at great odds when you consider how Britain was in 1973, politically and culturally, how difficult a year 1973 was. Well, I guess maybe some of that was down to, I mean, it's maybe just, yeah, the world was, you know, like most of Britain missed the 60s, but, you know, if you could at least kind of go to Rediffusion and rent a colour television, then that would that would be that would be like a, a major game changer. I don't really know. Um, what do you think, Mark? Well, I think that we were still having power cuts, weren't we? Or you know, they weren't unusual. I remember power cuts, and I remember a lot of strikes. You know, that was sort of. I, I my mum and dad got the Daily Mirror, so I remember I was quite precocious child. I used to read their Daily Mirror when they'd finished with it, and there was a lot of strikes going on. And um, that, that you know, it was compared to. You look at something like American Graffiti, which is like a Californian 1950s teenage years. I think part of the reason why that resonated so much with British audiences, because it was nothing like that growing up as a teenager in Swindon. Do you know what I mean? Like rain lashed, lots of brutalist concrete everywhere, um, lots of um, fag smoke and chips out of a bag, you know, and, and then, you know, your your colour and your warmth came from your sort of pop music, really, and, your, and, and it was in some ways quite a bleak time. I've got very fond memories of it, but I, I'm a big fan of bleak you know i think that's what produces a lot of great art uh as opposed to you know very blithe circumstances and kind of getting prepared for this i went back remember the rock and roll years series oh, didn't yeah it? best tv program ever i think i alerted you to the copy of it on youtube for yeah, yeah yeah went back and watched <laughs> many times yeah and, and i sat and i thought right i'll just scribble down what the kind of headline stories were through it i've written down ira bombs in london yeah. oil shortages petrol rations three day a week and then i've written the osmonds <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think it was hard for people you know everything inflation was going crazy um and i think you know people didn't have much you know that's but what what they did have was you know either massively uh you know like the, the sort of creative giants of the time your roxy music your, mm-hmm. your gamble and huffs you know these Pete barry whites that sort of literally you think where does genius like that come from? Yeah. Or they were sort of supercharged escapism like Mud and Susie and Gary Glitter and Alvin Stardust and, and stuff. And, you know, 
I don't remember. I rem- I must have been pretty well protected from it because I don't remember it as a miserable time at all. But I was only seven. I wasn't trying to pay the bills, you know. I was very lucky. I, I think I had a very unrepresentative night in '73 because, um, you know, as as I've mentioned before, and I've written about, I I grew up in a fish and chip shop, which was a very colourful place to grow up, and not least because the back room had lots of pinball machines, and uh, which just made these amazing kind of noises, and the radio was playing back there. So my earliest memories are this just amazing kind of pandemonium of like flippers flipping and kind of, and you know, those kind of, you know, the metal balls of the pinball machine kind of bouncing off the, this, these electrified chicanes and stuff. And so um, I actually, I, weirdly enough, I remember it as a hugely colourful, exciting time. Pinball machines like the fair are very, very glam rock, aren't they? I mean, they're just perfect for that sort of aesthetic, that environment. Yeah, it's just uh, overload, yeah. Yeah, there's some good pinball machines came out in 1973. I just can't remember what they are. I did find some. This is what we uh, came for, eh? We, we start talk about pinball machines. Pin- but do you know what? There will be plenty of people listening to this will have their own memories of pinball machines, to be honest. I can't walk past one without having a go. I literally cannot walk past one to this day without getting change and going on it. You know, um, I, I think they're, they're amazing. But then I suppose to a modern generation, describing rock on is also like describing the pinball machine, really, isn't it? Although they are quite hard to do. I mean, when you get, you know, when you, I used to think, I got really good at, we used to go to holiday camps, you know, in the summer holidays. Mm. And I was always given, you know, two peas or whatever it was to go and play on the, on the pinball machines. And um, I got quite good. And I sort of, in my head, I think I'm quite good at it. And then you go at the first couple of balls, they just go straight down that middle bit and you're fucked, you know, like, um, they are quite hard, you know. They, you get into the sort of to, swing a yeah, bit, but you have to not release the flippers at exactly the same time. You have to momentarily release one flipper slightly before the other one in order That's to it. narrow the passage that the ball goes through. It was a big year for albums as well. We've obviously touched there on on Bowie and uh, Elton John, Roxy Music as well. We haven't really talked much about Roxy Music. So, you know, we've got two big albums from them. We've got For Your Pleasure and Stranded. Quite different albums as well. It shows the fast-moving pace of music in 1973. Your Brian Eno leaves after For Your Pleasure, so that there is a definite different vibe on Stranded, although Brian Eno very generously has always said Stranded is his favourite Roxy Music album because he's not on it. For, for Your Pleasure is the one that you always see in, you know, Billboard, top 100 albums of the 70s or of all time. I know for a fact that when the vinyl is reissued regularly, it's usually For Your Pleasure that sells out first. Mm. It's got that very iconic, you know, very kind of high-gloss Amanda Lear cover with a fake sort of i think it's meant to be a fake las vegas in space kind of mm. uh, that's all painted that that sort of cityscape behind brian ferry and amanda lear she's walking a black panther of course it's all very glossy and nighttime uh again you know if you're growing up in you know guildford or something and you see that it's just like it's another world isn't it i mean we've got street life on cd4 uh, yes. Which still, I think, has as one of the most exciting intros to any track because it just, as you say, Mark, it opens up a world of something completely different. You know, yeah, did you read the sleeve notes? I found something out about that today from reading the, uh, Michael Mulligan's notes in the um, in the yearbook sleeve notes, and um, 
those uh, street sounds uh, that you yeah. hear at the beginning, they tried hanging uh, a microphone outside of a window, and I think it was Soho or Oxford Street, uh, and it didn't really work. They couldn't really pick up the sound of the city. Mm. So they ended up uh, recording those street sounds from a sound effects album of a Tunisian street market. So that's yeah. what you're hearing. That's amazing. But again, it's just, for me, I would equate that to hearing something in the early 80s like Rio. Or, yeah. you know, it's that team. And obviously, Duran Duran have spoke about the legacy of, of Roxy music. But it was that breathless escapism of pop into something that you just couldn't imagine. Roxy Music never released a bad record or a bad note. You know, that's one of the things about that catalogue is it's completely bulletproof because the quality control was so high over the course of a decade and then there's nothing mm. to sully that memory. You know, it's just that's Roxy Music's body of work. Obviously, Brian Ferry also did a covers album that year, so he was quite busy to two Roxy albums. Yep. A one-off single, Pajama Rama, which is on the uh, extra, gave Banana Rama the inspiration for their name. And these foolish things, which um, as we speak, 50 years ago, A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, which is his Bob Dylan cover, is in the charts. Is it? I think. Yes, it's number up from number 45 to number 23 50 years ago. Wow. I was shocked when I heard this era of Roxy music for the first time because I was too young to hear them at the time. And the first time I heard this iteration of Roxy music was when they were played on the closing credits of Mike Reed's pop quiz sometime in the early 80s. And um, I just couldn't understand why they sounded like they sounded like they were quite frightening. They just sounded this like this like marauding band of glamorous aliens. And, you know, I remember sort of thinking, you know, because I was like 11, I was brilliant. And Brian, Brian Ferry looked like the swide, height of suaveness to me. I remember thinking, I bet he's embarrassed about putting that kind of glitter on his eyelids now, you know, like, like it's, <laughs> as if somehow like it was a rash decision. Yeah. But listening to the songs on this, um, on, on, on this annual here, it's still overwhelming that kind of just completely like maximalist marauding quality i mean it was just everyone was signing up for that in various ways mm. and um i've always loved that i always loved it when like an arrangement is a bit too much you know when it feels like your system can't quite contain it yeah i think it was griff from uh super furry animals said in an interview, I remember maybe it was even you interviewing him Pete in the nineties at some point he said. I've never forgotten it. What Roxy Music fitted into a pop single is frightening, you know, as a musician. Mm. What they managed to get into a coherent sounding pop record is terrifying, you know, as an artist. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess in, in a weird way, they had that in common with Roy Wood, who sort of went about it in a very different way. But yeah, definitely. See My Baby Jive is the one. That intro... amazing and that's actually one of the few songs from this set that i do remember hearing at the time because i just wanted that song in a weird kind of way to sort of to run away and take me with it because it was just it just it, it was there was a kind of kindness about it if that makes sense it was just like a bunch of really exciting adults that you could you could could sort of take take you with them and just show you just something amazing and uh you know, I was listening to it again yesterday, and 
It's funny, really. I, f- I find the saxophone on See My Baby Drive quite funny because it's kind of got nowhere to go. There's no, it's such an opaque record. It just kind of like bobs along the top without really kind of, you know, it's like when you go to a party and everyone's kind of talking to each other, you're not quite sure which conversation to intercept. But it's amazing. I just, uh, what a heroic piece of work. Yeah. We've got, um, talking about, well, just a little sidebar. This is the year my dad worked in a bank in Curzon Street. I think he was in that year. I think it was that branch. Roy Wood banked there and had been in the bank and left his handbag behind. He had like a bag, you know, like, which was very sort of, you know, sort of an expensive handbag, man bag if you like, but he called it his handbag. Anyway, my dad rescued it. My dad found it. Everyone was terrified there was going to be a bomb in it because it was the time of bombs being left in bags all over London. And um, my dad sort of gingerly checked and it was, oh, oh this is uh, this is that fella from Top of the Pops. My dad was into his music, so he knew who he was. My dad's, one of my dad's favourite bands was The Move, actually, mm. um, which was uh, Roy Wood's, one of his previous. Anyway, Roy Wood went in to pick it up and he said you know i'm so grateful it's got you know it's got everything i need and i i don't know you know i've left this bag and he said what's your name and my dad said my dad's scottish he's got quite a thick scottish accent my dad said it's raywood that's my dad's name raymond uh and roy said no that's my name (laughs) my dad said no really it's raywood and they had this kind of exchange and um uh, yeah, so that that's a thing. But one of the things we've also got Angel Fingers on the extra, which is another genius wizard track, and it's got that uh, amazing Phil Spector in space sound that that see my baby jive's got. And and I wish it could be Christmas every day is is at the end of the of the, of the official yearbook. And I only found out last Christmas that the version that we all hear every year in shopping centres and on now Christmas and was actually a re-record from 1981. He, the original tapes uh, from the original single have been lost forever. So Roy re-recorded everything again in 1981 with a new choir from a different school. And that's the version that we think of as I wish it could be Christmas every day. And I, when I found out, I just could not believe it. And I, got myself a copy of the original seven inch from discogs right. so i can compare and contrast so if you if you ever see it grab it because it, it's very slightly different you can hear but that's how clever roy wood is he could just think oh, i'll have to fucking do it again you know like and he could play every instrument famously like prince could um and he did it again it's interesting contrasting what um uh wizard are doing on this set against what elo are doing and um mm. given that obviously you know roy and jeff were in the same band and just sort of trying to i wonder if they were because they're both doing this maximalist thing in in very different ways they must have been looking at over each other, over their shoulders at what the other was doing and just trying to sort of edge ahead. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're both on Harvest, aren't they? Is yeah. it the 10538 Overture or the 10358 Overture? I think they're both on that, aren't they? And then Roy pisses off and forms Wizard. Totally. Well, then you've got Roll Over Beethoven by ELO. Yeah. But initially, it's Wizard that have the huge hits this year. ELO have a perfectly respectable year and Showdown is on the extra and it's one of my favourite singles from the year but you can't say Wizard have two number ones and I wish it could be Christmas every day and Roy Wood has a couple of solo hits himself 
he's having he's having the time of his life. Um, and then of course the long game, it's game over. It's all about ELO, isn't it? Yeah. Well, show, showdown seems to be the the first kind of intimation of what I guess what we might call like a formula that works commercially for ELO. And it's kind of once he's got got the scent of it in his nose. No stopping him, is there? You can definitely hear Evil Woman and Living Thing in the Genesis. The Genesis in is in that showdown, isn't it? And showdown, you know, is remarkable. It just sounds about four years ahead of its time as well. It's it's really mid to late seventies sounding. Absolutely, I always yeah, I always forget it's so early. That also takes us to the Beatles. There's a bit of Beatle representation on here. We've got Live and Let Die on here. Um, I'm just checking. It's now credited to Paul McCartney and Wings. Was it always Paul McCartney and Wings, or was it just Wings living like? Can't keep up. Sometimes it's Wings, isn't it? Sometimes it's like John yeah. Lennon's credits are the same. It's quite hard to track on the official chart company, Paul McCartney. Yeah, but, probably the best thing to do is to look at actually while you chat, talk away. I'll have a look on Discord. See what yeah, yeah, we'll talk away. So anyway, you've got Live and Let Die on there. You've got Mind Games by. John Lennon as well on there. Um, but I suppose in some ways, 73 was a bigger year for the Beatles for compilation albums. You, Pete, I'm going to really have to hand over to you on this because you are the expert, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll come back and I'll tell you who, who Live and Let Die is credited to and we can maybe have a chat about Red Rose Speedway. In, in as far as I remember from reading the sort of Beatles day-by-day books, and this is only, you know, my memory's anything but reliable, I think they were sort of struggling to... It was every week in the music press, there was a story about whether or not the Beatles may or may not reform. Hmm. The the music press were really, really willing it to happen. There were just two things that the music press would not let go of in the early 70s. Is Elvis going to come to Britain? Uh, which we now know was never could never have happened because of Colonel Tom Parker. He didn't have the documentation because well, Tom Parker was an illegal immigrant, so he couldn't leave America. And the Beatles, uh, you know, did someone, you know, someone, they're constantly being asked about it and it must be hugely annoying for them. And obviously these, the Red and the Blue album are released and I think they outperform everything else that they've got going on in the charts at the time. So really, the Beatles are really a sort of dead weight. I think that the the, the solo Beatles having sort of to drag around with them. And really, I think for me, the, the, the best response to that is, you know, this is the year that Paul McCartney sort of turns wings from a kind of homespun family affair to something maybe not world beating, but certainly a, 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 an entity that can can really kind of account for themselves, you know, in a, in a major way around the world. And Live and Let Die is, you know, one of the first tracks included on here. It's a major, inter- I mean, God knows what it must have sounded at the time, but, you know, the, when, the, when the orchestra comes in. I was a bit unforgiving about the reggae segment, you know. I just used to find that quite funny. And, uh, but... Um, I hadn't seen the Bond. I didn't realise it was set in Jamaica. So there is a reason that yeah. that, is, that is there. I just thought it was a, a random kind of thing that Paul had allowed Linda to do because mm-hmm. she came up with that bit. And then, of course, at the end of the year, they uh, he, there's no stopping him. He loses two of wings on the eve of of his trip to Nigeria. He doesn't. No one's forcing him to go to Nigeria to record his next album. But that's so Paul, you know. He they, they go to Nigeria. He loses two of the band, and to, to my mind, makes you know his best album of that decade. So after being really getting it in the neck for the you know for sort of people thought he'd broken up the Beatles and all the rest of it, 
and for making records that people thought were uncool and parochial at the time. Yeah. He sort of casually just stretches out into comfortable lead at this point. Right, Mark, you've looked it up. <laughs> what was the credit? It was, just, it was Wings, you're right. It was just Wings. It came out of the Apple label as just Wings. Yeah. Yeah, some, I think this is possibly what's happened since, is like they've kind of tried to consolidate metadata you know this is the world we live in now metadata is so important about how you find things on streaming and everything sits on the right page and it could be it could be related to that do you know that bit in the beatles anthology when paul mccartney's defending the white album and he says look forget it it's the bloody white album forget it it's bloody paul mccartney who cares whether it's wings yeah yeah Yeah, and of of course band on the run has some massive single it comes out at the end of the year and um it is you know it's the standard by which we all uh judge all the other paul mccartney Cartney albums probably but I, I would just want to stand up a little bit for Red Rose Speedway because it's got my favorite McCartney song ever on it and that's um Little Lamb Dragonfly which is very parochial because it's literally about a lamb on their farm it's just an example of how easy he can pluck a melody out of the air and it just sounds like heaven sent you know um, of course you got My Love was his biggest UK single that year Yep. That was in the charts for weeks, like weeks and weeks. Um, and they start the year with a, a bit of a sort of stoner rock album, which is High, 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 which I don't think he's on any album. That You know, you're right. And he's really pulling himself together, goes to Nigeria, gets mugged uh, quite badly. Master tapes. Uh, yeah. Master tapes nicked. And, but Paul McCartney's one of those artists that seems to wear everything so lightly. He just kind of gets on with it after that, recovers and he's back. You know, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but... On the Beatles thing, we do need to mention that Mind Games is on here as a single. (laughs) John Lennon, at at this very moment, 50 years ago, is beginning his Lost Weekend, which goes on for 18 months. Mm -hmm. He's just uh, moved off to Los Angeles with May Pang, with Yoko Ono's Blessing. He's got a new girlfriend. Uh, And Mind Games is obviously a terrific song. I wonder what's going on with uh, George Harrison and Ringo, who both had hits this year, yeah. uh, but they're not, they don't appear. And I wonder if that's a licensing thing. So photograph, photograph uh, is a great... an amazing record. George Harrison wrote it for Ringo and that's, that doesn't appear. That's uh that's just about to be released. George Harrison's Give Me Peace on Earth, also not not on here. Ian, do you want to talk about the Red and Blue albums? Because it was an exciting cultural moment. As we're, as we're sitting here in 2023, I think they're due to be reissued again. But mm. they were my first touch point for the Beatles. But, you know, and it was it was that sequencing. Am I right in thinking it was Alan Klein that sequenced them? I don't know if he sequenced them, but I think he definitely made them happen. Yeah. Pete, do you know? I don't know. But while, while it's on my mind, I've got a couple of... Uh, there are a couple of tangential Ringo connections on this now compilation that mm. I'd like to draw your attention to. First involves the Hot Shots, Snoopy versus the Red Baron. I think this is the song. I don't think I've misremembered this. But the Hot Shots were a, were a, a kind of not real band for the purposes of this record. I think it was they were it was actually the Simmerons, wasn't it? Did yeah, you yeah, you're right. No, it was. Uh, which explains why, you know, it actually sounds like quite a good reggae band, even though it's obviously a novelty record. And I read somewhere that the record was initially offered to uh, Ringo Starr via his management or one of his reputations, and it was very rudely turned down um, in a kind of sort of how dare you even think of offering this rubbish to Ringo. So I quite like that idea. 
And also... Oh, it's not a... too far from Octopus's Garden or Yellow Submarine, now, is it, really? You can certainly imagine, you know, why someone might have the idea of offering it to, to Ringo. And then uh, Junior Cat... So the, the other thing I noticed that was quite interesting, I was looking to see which of all the songs on here has had the few, fewest Spotify streams. Would anyone like to hazard a guess? Uh, uh, Welcome Home by Peterson Lee. Good guess, but not quite. Is it oh. is it Simon Park Orchestra? I level. No, which I love, and I hope we get to talk about it soon. But uh, but it's uh, <laughs> it's a uh, sweet illusion by Junior Campbell, which um, I did I didn't know. To, so Junior Campbell um, was in Marmalade, right? Of course, yes. I know where you're going with this Ringo connection now. Yeah, okay. yeah, and uh, and Junior Campbell co-composed the music and co-wrote the lyrics for 182 episodes and 31 songs of Thomas and Friends. Between 1983 and 2003, oh, um, of course, Thomas was voiced by Ringo. Uh, was Thomas voiced by Ringo, or no? Was he? The yeah, player? of course. Yeah. And and obviously, Marmalade only hit with Obla Dubla Da. Oh. Yeah, of course. So there, there, so there are some Beatles connections there with Marmalade and Ringo. So, he was yeah. really, he was really underrated, Junior Campbell. You know, and Marmalade yeah. generally really underrated. Yeah, uh, they just weren't quite cool enough. Uh, you know, reflections of my life by Marmalade, which was a 1970 massive, massive hit from three years before. Yeah. You know, fantastic, and a big hit in America as well. And I think he moved to America, left Marmalade, started this solo career, didn't really work out for him. Somebody said that he ended up chauffeuring for a bit before coming back to England and obviously doing Thomas and Friends, which uh, hopefully kept him very well remunerated. But I gave Junior Campbell track a listen to today because I haven't heard it. Mm. much and you know it's it's a banger fair play to the team at now because there's quite a few tracks on here that could potentially get lost in the mist of time that's one of them and they've you know they've kind of pulled a few back i mean like, well we know mark the sequencing on these albums is always immaculate yeah but another one for me was clifford t ward and gay which which is another track actually that's got a bit of a kind of legacy to it and a bit of history but you don't hear very often and it's a beautiful record it's a shame I mean, he died didn't he quite yeah. a long time ago you know, died too young and everything. With um, yeah. I know for a fact that Michael, who wrote the sleeve notes for these, is is a big fan. You know, a big fan, and uh, you know, he had a you know he had a lot of success. I mean, Scullery was another one. Mm. Um, he had a, he had a hit with around this time, and Gay is. You know, it's it's a wonderful Colin Bluntstoney kind of. Yeah. Uh, ethereal early 70s ballad that's sort of it's beautiful you know absolutely beautiful yeah we talked about Elton John earlier as well we've got Kiki D on there doing Amaroos which is just I know and it's I I wouldn't drag that into the easy listening section because there's quite a bit of real easy listening on here as well once you get Jerry Coble I call it I, I make the distinction that there's sort of old people easy listening, yeah, <laughs> which is Peters and Lee and Perry Como and Al Martino and Shirley Bassey, yeah. and then there's your, your Clifford T. Wards and your Elkie Brookses, which are you know a lot. You know, you can imagine a teenager buying them, whereas it's more difficult. I'm sure teenagers did, but you can't really imagine teenage girls digging Peters and Lee so much. It's more like your nana. Well, Kiki D, along with David Essex and uh, Alvin stardust had been slogging away without too much success for a good 10 years before um this which was her sort of breakthrough hit 
So, and, you know, she tried all sorts of stuff. You know, she she was signed to Motown at one, at one point, you know, and the first British artist, I think, to be signed to Motown. Is that right? Have I misremembered that? I no, I think you're right. And she, it's a wicked record. You know, I'm always yeah. trying to get someone to reissue. In fact, I'm going to make a note and pick that back up again. But there's a she did a brilliant Fontana single that Bob Stanley collected on his Girls Are At It Again. I think it's called Miracles. So, yeah, she'd recorded for all these labels and hadn't had a snifter. And <clears throat> somehow she was friends with Elton John. And I think the story is Tony King, who was Elton's friend at the time. Tony was working, I think, for Apple or he was working for James Taylor or, or somebody, the legendary Tony King, um, heard the original French uh amaras and suggested it and uh, you know it's uh it's just a brilliant single i mean it's what a what a way to start your yeah, chart career yeah. very different to what she'd done before because it has this just beautiful it's very european it's a mm. very it's, it's amazing string arrangement i guess she had amazing string arrangements actually on her on some of her 60s stuff her album her 1968 album which i think was called as i am is it's got some you know is very much in the kind of dusty springfield mold and there's some very very beautiful there's a song on there called with a kiss which is just like to die for it's just rapturous and the motown stuff as you said mark the motown stuff was fantastic and the motown, uh, motown album was released with two sleeves the american sleeve is quite funny because they've really sort of gone to town on the fact that she's british there's lots of union jacks splattered about all over it yes. and they photographed her in such a way is you can't quite tell that she's white. I mean, I, th- I think they've put a filter on it or something. So they're sort of slightly hedging their bets. Uh, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is some rare American, you know, soul release, you know, genuine R&B. Yeah. You know. But yes, they're hedging their bets by plastering it with Union Jacks as well. I think, you know, if that came out again, I think the, uh, you know, the mods would collect it don't you and i'd I'd definitely go for it but great it's a great i've got a copy it's a great record yeah can we talk about soul because yes yeah that's a good bit of soul on here as well oh my i mean what a year for some if 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 we take if you know if if i had to choose which genre i was allowed to take one genre of music to a desert island i would have a really hard time choosing between glam rock and 70s soul because these are my two favorite things and the quality on this i mean it's almost like we haven't got stevie wonder he doesn't clear for compilations for his 70s work uh but what we do have is we've got aretha franklin we've got the ojs we've got harold melvin mm. we've got ike and tina turner and roberta flack and diana ross and the detroit emeralds and the isley brothers and the temptations and jimmy helms you know and the jackson five uh, and first choice, it, 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 you know, and that's just the yearbook on the on the extra. You've got real favourites of mine, like Pillow Talk by Sylvia. You know, mm. she ended up setting up Sugar Hill Gang. And you've got New York City, which was Nile Rogers's band, you know, with I'm Doing Fine Now. And uh, Gladys Knight's on both. Interestingly, not a hit here, but in 1973 is also the year of things which aren't on this record, but are spectacular soul records like Midnight Train to Georgia. We don't have a hit with it till 76, but in America, Midnight Train to Georgia, the Jackson Sisters, I believe in Miracles, and Peebles, I Can't Stand the Rain, Cool and the Gang's Jungle Boogie, Sly Stones, If You Want Me to Stay. It's an embarrassment of riches. (laughs) 
Yeah, the music business is a very funny sort of arena, really, because just when people are saying the charts are boring and very predictable, something rather unusual happens. And this week, something somewhat amazing has happened, because after just two weeks, the Simon Park Orchestra are straight in at number one there with eye level. <laughs> So I want to go back to Simon Park. Yes, um, I, again, it's one of the few songs I remember sort of hearing at the time. Uh, my, I actually, what I realised later was that it was never the original version I was obsessed with because my parents had a compilation album which had the TV Times logo on the on the cover and a sort of painting, a collagey painting of characters from various programmes. Uh, oh, have you got it? I've got it behind me somewhere. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And it's got it's got the theme to Isla, and I was just completely sort of enraptured by this song. I mean, I still, I still occasionally, along with um, "Love Is Blue" by the Paul Murray Orchestra, I'll kind of I'll try and find some like YouTube footage of like the 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 conductor and the orchestra is playing that because because you know it's kind of these they're always these kind of groovy light orchestral orchestras that have a drummer that kind of really makes it swing and gets a bit excited and orchestras with drummers are just kind of a great thing anyway but um an eye level so i, I still to this day i know nothing whatsoever about van der volk which is, this is the the sort of theme of but um simon park hogs quite a lot of credit for uh for a trap for a piece of music that um he, he didn't actually write it was by jan sturkart uh, he was a Dutch composer. He wrote under who actually who 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 I his whose stuff I know under a name that he composed under Jacques Trombe, mm. who's kind of big in the in the library music sort of circuit. And and the theme tune to I Level was also um, a, a piece of library music to start with. And ITV just plucked it out. It was recorded a few years earlier, and yeah. they just plucked it out to to use it on there. It's one of those things where I was only four, but. I was just sort of imagining, I was always like, maybe I'm just imposing a false memory on there, but I was sort of imagining a place in my head that was definitely not Britain. I was imagining boulevards and, you know, beautiful kind of autumnal sort of trees hanging over, you know, sort of these kind of grassy kind of thoroughfares where kind of sophisticated mums with with kind of miniskirts would kind of push their babies along in buggies. And that was very much a world that I kind of wanted to be part of. And somehow I saw all of this in this sort of piece of music, which I just sort of played and played and played. Not in it, so not in not in the version that on the single, but uh, the TV Times version. And then I think my mind was gently blown a few years ago when I found out the B side was the theme tune to Crown Court. Really, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. You've no. told me a 1973 fact. Oh yeah. no, I can't believe I'm actually filling in a bit of. Um, I did not know that. that. Yep, <laughs> Distant Hills. I've, I've so... still got the hump with Eye Level because it stopped, uh, knocked Wizard off number one with Angel Fingers, <laughs> it, and it, my friend Stan and the Ballroom Blitz from getting to number one. Oh goodness! The closing credits of Crown Court. You know the kind of slightly sad, melancholy. <laughs> the person's been taken away to to, to prison type music, is a piece called. Distant Hills, which was also composed by Simon Park, and that was on the B side. That, that that's a good value, seven inch. Amazing. Okay, yeah. Mark, I mean, you want to go back to soul music, don't you? Yeah. Do you want to... Well, yeah. Just say, I mean, I think we need to celebrate the arrival into uh, our lives of Barry White for a start. He's got two mm. albums as well this year. Absolutely. And he also produces my joint favorite. I mean, my favorite single of 1973 is Bowie's "Driving Saturday." Uh, but it's, it shares that 
uh, with uh, Love Unlimited Under the Influence of Love, which is just such a banger of a tune. So at the same time, just doing his two solo records, having uh, hits with, you know, I'm going to love you just a little bit more, babe. Uh, I had a a bit of a revelation listening to I'm going to love you just a little bit more the other day to could I knew I was going to do this. Because I've also been listening to a huge amount of pulp where I've really had a fallen back in love with pulp in a big way. And I can hear a lot of separations slash his and hers era pulp in this era of Barry White. In his own way, Jarvis Cocker was clearly trying to create a, a, a persona that was in a kind of working class post-punk Sheffield way. Mm. He copped loads off Barry White, and that's like such a mad thing to even hear myself say, but it is definitely there in that little bit of Pulp's history. Do you not reckon? I think you're right, because something rings a bell in his Good Pop, Bad Pop biography. He talks about having a Barry White cassette Mm. as a student. So actually, I think you're onto something there, Pete. Doesn't seductive Barry on this is hardcore sampling as well? Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, it's, um, I love that kind of transmutation, you know, from one very different world to another, you know. But, yeah, you're right. So the soul stuff on here is just incredible. It's great to see, you know, uh, Jimmy Helms on there. That Jimmy Helms track, Gonna Make You an Offer. People don't go on about it very much, but as a kind of a sort of early slow jam, oh my I mean, God. it's just heavenly. It is- a re- erection section, you know, here is for soul music is amazing. You've got like touch me in the morning and killing me softly with his song and going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Let's get on. It's like, it's amazing. The sequencing and the selection of tracks is really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, you've got, I mean, obviously Gamble and Huff, you know, pretty peerless with um, the stuff they were doing with Harold Melvin and the OJs at this time and Three Degrees album, which is, uh, they won't have any hits here till next year but the three degrees debut album the one with when will you see i see you again came out this year mm. uh it's the year that um philadelphia international imprint actually you actually see it on record labels in the uk because before that that stuff had been through cbs or epic epic um i think it'd been released on up to then so gotta gotta talk about norman whitfield and papa was a rolling stone and temptations masterpiece album you know this sort of music is you know, talk about production, it, it just will never date. I mean, you can't, you literally can't improve on it. Papa was a Rolling Stone is a, is a funny one, isn't it? Because it, in a weird way, I think it was the reason why the Temptations fell out with Norman Whitfield. Is this, uh, so what Norman Whitfield, like Dennis Edwards didn't like the way Norman Whitfield was making him sing. Is that, have I remembered that correctly? Yeah, so they fell out with him around this time for this album. And then on the next one, which came out in 73, was called Masterpiece. And they actually thought you are fucking taking the piss now because the, the main track is about 12 minutes long. It's called Masterpiece and they're barely on it. It's mostly a Norman Whitfield sound spectacular. The temps don't even come in for several minutes. And when they do come in, they're barely on it. But yeah, they, they're starting to, that relationship starting to break down because obviously he's starting to use the Temptations more as a studio tool. And if you're the Temptations, you're not having that, are you? I mean, I guess he was able to do that more with the undisputed truth. Uh, he had just kind of were also yeah. one of his, and I think uh, both those songs, "Papa Rosarelli Stone" and "Law of the Land," I think were initially undisputed truth songs. Which, much to oh. his chagrin, um, I think you know, were clearly the Temptations had more success with. 
Am yeah. I right thinking that the the undisputed truth were kind of more of a Norman Whitfield project, the one that he kind of maybe wanted to succeed more? I would imagine so, and I imagine you know Motown was like uh, you know you're you're working with this person on these songs and get on with it, and we want to hit. You know that's kind of how it operated. <laughs> So if if we were going to pull together then, how well does this represent 73? I mean, it's perfectly. I mean, there's a couple of things missing, but that's not their fault. Mm. I've nailed it. I mean, they've, they've nailed the glam rock. They've made, nailed the soul. The right novelty singles are on there. Uh, it's full of pop. And, you know, it, it just feels like 1973. You know, it's right. It's perfect. And for us younger ones, Pete, that can't remember 73 as much, how is it for you? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite overwhelming, actually, just in terms of just how much was kind of firing at you in all sorts of different directions. I really sort of gravitated towards things that I, I felt like I hadn't really given a fair crack of the whip or, you know, were sort of un- underexposed, you know, t- to me. So let me think. So, like, for instance, um, you know, the 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 Faces track. It might be my favourite on here, actually, of the whole album. Cindy, incidentally. Yeah, it is. And it's such a brilliant song. The lyric as well. I mean, it's just... I know. Cindy, get your coat on. What a brilliant line. People just forget, like, what a great lyricist Rod Stewart was oh, in his early life. And, um, yeah, and sort of things like um, there was like, a, you know, the album Stardust track, which I just think is such an amazing production. I definitely hadn't really given that a chance, you know, before. And um, so, yeah, and also the um, I'm just trying to remember what the other Mud song was, which, oh, yeah, Crazy by Mud. That is a great song. That is, is so brilliant. Sinewy and sexy and sinister. It is an intriguing lyric because he's sort of like he's obviously he's got his sights focused. He's kind of fascinated by this much sort of younger woman, but mm. she's not interested in him at all. And he's kind of by the sounds of the lyric, he kind of he really he kind of respects her more for it. Or I might be kind of reading too much into it. And of course, Barry Blue dancing on a Saturday night, which is you know he a song that you clearly would only write if you'd just come back off your holidays on a Greek island because uh-huh. it's essentially sort of like provincial disco version of uh, Zorba's dance. So status quo, whiskey in the jar, all these things we haven't even talked about. Well, you're so vain we haven't talked about, you know, like these brilliant, brilliant singles that are mm-hmm. kind of era-defining. But it probably brings us back to the point you made at the beginning, Mark, of defining 1973 as such a pivotal year. It's an embarrassment of riches. It's too much. I mean, and and when you get when you dig into the extra, mm. it doesn't let you down either. You got the new seekers doing Pinball Wizard, and it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. If, if you do nothing else this week, please watch the YouTube video of them performing. They've made a proper Bohemian Rhapsody video for it way before Bohemian Rhapsody, and it is literally one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. And I watch it all the time and that sits on the extra between dawn see has anybody seen my sweet gypsy rose and avenues and alleyways by tony Cr- I mean, that's that's a good 15 minutes of your Not life bad, is it and timmy thomas why can't we live together i mean which is one of my favorites what a record what a record just an incredible and that and that sees out cd1 which had started with Squeeze Me, Please Me by Slade. So, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, there is room for more 1973 in everyone's lives. 
Mark, Pete, thank you so much for uh, joining me. We've never headed as far back as 1973 on this podcast, but uh, thank you no. so much for joining us. No, thank you very, very much. And a final word on 1973, Mark? Only that I wish we could have talked about and included uh, the man about the house and are you being served themes. And um, We missed Bob Marley completely, but we've run out of time. Thank no. you. It was a pleasure to talk about my favourite year. Thank you, Mark. And thank you very much, Pete, for joining us as well. Um, any kind of final comments for 73? Oh, I just love talking to you guys. So let's not leave it so long next time. Thank you very much. Absolutely wonderful. Guys, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. A genius, McDermott. Thank you. Thank you.